Hello everyone and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I am Finn Arne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us uh, Wilco Hardenberg, who's a senior research scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. Uh, and he will uh, discuss his book, A Monastery for the Ibex, Conservation, State and Conflict on the Grand Paradiso, 1919 to 1949. That came out this year with a University of Pittsburgh Press. So Wilco, I'm just going to leave it to you. Um, thank you, Fernandez. Thank you, Dolly, for the invitation and for having me here. It's a pleasure to present my book. Um, so it is, um, it is part of a, a pretty well-known tradition in environmental history, which is the history of conservation, one of the first kinds of environmental histories we have had. And I'm focusing on the Grand Paradiso National Park, which was Italy's first, debatably Italy's first, uh, uh, and the second one in the Alpine, in the Alps, after the Swiss National Park. It is, um, I'm focusing in my book on the period it was governed by the fascist regime, so the 1920s, 1930s. I have a little bit longer timeline in the title, as you heard, because I also tell how the park was set up and how it transi transitioned to, the, to democracy afterwards. To get to the matter of, of the book, how does it come that Italy set up a national park in 1922 uh, two months after the fascist came to power. So Italian fascists are not famous for their environmental credentials. They didn't have a particularly um, a particular interest in protecting the environment or being conservationist. But there was a tradition in uh, the early 20th century in Italy among the liberal elites to defend the protection of nature or defend the uh, conservation of particular bits of the land. This was mainly along the theory that you should protect some parts to be able to extract from other parts as a sort of equilibrium theory. But as I said, how does it come that the fascists came and did this preservation? So my, the point that I make in the book is that it was mainly out of propaganda or to appease some of these liberal constituents saying, we did what the liberal regime or the liberal government haven't been able to do. But what were they talking here about? The point is that this national park used to be a royal hunting reserve since 1850, more or less. And it was the area that had, has preserved the um, ibex, which is a mountain goat, kind of mountain goat, in the Alps, because they had gone extinct in most of the Alps, in all other areas, except this hunting reserve. 1919, however, just after World War I, uh, the king decided that he didn't have the funds or the uh, desire to continue to invest money into this. He had done his last hunt in 1906, so 13 years earlier. He wasn't such a passionate hunter as his uh, father and grandfather. So he decided he would donate the park to the state and give, uh, commit the state to transform it in some form of national park or nature reserve or protection. The point is that from 1919 to 1922, the state or the uh, government went on discussing the issue, but never got to making a decision about it. 
and they mainly stalled because of finance issues. So the Ministry of Finance usually stalled these requirements because they thought we don't have enough money to fund a national park, who is interested, and so on. What was happening in the meantime? People were starting to move into the park and hunt the ibex. In part also with machine guns that they had brought home from the front of World War, of World War I. So the, uh, the issue started to be, how do we protect the ibex in a way or the other in, in the park? And so some local authorities like the province of Turin, which is the major city near the park, decided to invest some money and uh, for, for protection and ask the um, royal hunting guards to keep up protecting even if they had been dismantled. This was not working very well or this was not very effective and the population of Ibex continued to decline between 1919 and 1922. Then some uh, liberal politicians decided to meet with some fascist politicians and the legend says that during a dinner somebody asked Mussolini if he could sign this up, he boisterously said yes, and so on December the 3rd, the park was instituted officially. But there was no tradition in this institution, so what did the fascist regime do? They had no idea of what to do with the national park. They took a proposal made by the uh, uh, Christian Democrat Minister of Agriculture earlier that same year, for the creation of the park and translated that into law for the creation of the park. So the park was born with a fascist signature, but on the premises of the liberal system. So it was born with a lot of autonomy. It was an independent organization. It worked uh, free, mostly free from state pressures, except that it didn't have much funds because it had to pay for its own Wardens, which kept up sort of more or less 75% of its yearly budget. Because instead of having a corps of wardens paid by the state, they hired temporary wardens each year and paid them out of budget. This led to many difficulties throughout the early, early years until uh, the 1930s and also to major conflicts with the local population. The local population wasn't happy about the institution of the park. They thought that the king had no moral authority to donate what he did not own, but he was only being granted as a hunting right by the local communities. Uh, so many protests uh, started to uh, happen. The most exceptional one happened in 1926, when multiple ibexes were poisoned with strychnine put in the salt that the park wardens were setting out for the ibex for survival. The response from the park was stern on the one side with accusations and calls for the carabinieri, so the military police, the local, the, one of the Italy's police forces to intervene and look for these uh, saboteurs or a request to the person of the valley in which it happened to uh, talk against his parishioners during, his, um, during the services. 
But on the other hand, they also decided that the local communities needed some um, form of compensation for the loss of the hunting rights. And so one way they had to compensate was to hire locals to be park wardens, which was, I think, they had done from the beginning. And so these, the fact that there was no national, um, national park service, so to say, allowed them to hire locals to do the, or former um, poachers to do the control of the territory, and this allowed to transfer some funds to the local communities. But there were, more money was also needed. The hope of the park to buy off all the land and uh, transform the, the whole park into state property was deemed too costly by the finance ministry again. So they decided that they would donate, do some donations to the local communities. Some donations were done directly from by Mussolini, so officially by, by prime minister. Others were done by as compensations for the loss of cultivations or damages and so on. So this, over the years, so the park was able to reduce the conflict with the local communities. But the central state wasn't happy or the fascist regime wasn't happy about the fact that there was still an autonomous organization organizing conservation anywhere. So around 1933, after early attempts, they uh, canceled the autonomous commission that organized the park and centralized um, conservation to a newly set up forestry militia. The point is the forestry militia, there were no conservation technicians, they were foresters. They knew about how many trees to cut, how to cut them, how to do sustainable uh, tree cutting. They were all how to hunt for um, wood poacher, but they had no interest or no knowledge about how to preserve an animal species. What they brought to the park was instead, so what used to be done was flexible uh, routes and flexible times for wardens. So they would do uh, their tours secretly without knowledge of the local population at different times every day and following different routes so that they would have chances. What the um, uh, National Forestry Militia introduced was the fixed hours. So they did nine to five, essentially. They did nine to five and they did um, usually fixed routes or the west, uh, occasionally the routes were um, spilled out and handed out to, for example, there's, there was this one story which I recount in the book about uh, an officer of the militia who had a liaison with the sister of two hotel owners in the valley. And he, he was telling every night where he would be the day after during the day. And she would tell her, her brother who would then go the other way around, hunt Ibex and serve them in the restaurants of their, of their hotel. So there is, there is plenty of stories similar to that um, in this in the story of, of the National Park. So what happened after 1933, when the park really became fascist, so to say, was a steady decline of the animal population. Uh, Ibex had been arriving throughout the 1920s from about 2000 to 
more than 4,000 in 1933. And then they plummeted from 4,000 to uh, about 1,100 around 1943. So this shows how the impact, so the main factor, the, the main change was the centralization of conservation. And this is interesting because uh, frequently in conservation history, there's a debate about, yes, but a national park service could have done such a much better work than the local authorities. This was not the case in Italy or in fascist Italy at all, because the, there was not much interest by the authority that had been appointed to do this work, to pursue it in a productive way. So the story goes on with a, a new rising conflicts throughout the, 19, the 1940s, even if it had become increasingly difficult to do conflict in fascist Italy for obvious reasons of it was fascist Italy. It's not, it's not easy to be a protester, uh, to protest against a fascist regime, but still uh, there was a space for debate and discussion in because it was, it was considered a minor matter. It was not central to the party's politics. So there was some space for, in a way, democratic action by the local communities or, and for uh, action in tribunals and the courts. So to close, the book ends with 1945 and uh, to 1949, which is after the World War, because between 1943 and 1945, the animal population, when the area was occupied by the Nazis and by partisans, the animals went further down to just 400 animals in 1945 left. And then after the war, on the basis of some effort done by the partisans, the park was reinstated and the animals restarted to uh, get to the number of the 1920s. Now, since about the 1980s, it oscillates around 3,000 animals. So there is, a, there is a curve that goes up and down for natural, so to say, reasons. Yeah, that's, that's a core, cool, that's a very rough outline. Thanks so much for that, Wilco. That's a nice introduction to the book. So a couple of things um, occurred to me as I was listening to you. Um, and one has to do with the, the Ibex itself. So what what did people use the Ibex for? I mean, obviously this is a this was a hunting reserve, so it must have been considered a trophy worth displaying. But I would guess that these poachers were not poaching it for trophies, or were they? Yeah, um, the king was poaching for trophy, obviously. So that's the reason he he liked hunting uh, hunting ibex, and because it was a rare animal. But uh, it's also meat that's uh, that lands on uh, in the restaurants, especially because it's a prohibited kind of meat. It must have appealed some uh, gourmets in a special way. And then there is legends. About about the impact of uh, the pulverized horns of the ibex on health in one way or the other, which uh, reminds me always of the many histories of contemporary conservation and the impact of Chinese medicine on, on it. Yeah, so it was, main, it was mostly meat 
and to some extent these alternative medicine this alternative medicine thing which i i i have not found any claim by the poachers because the poachers don't write down things on what they would use it for but uh ibex meat was found in the menus uh, of some restaurants throughout the 1920s and 1930s, even if it was prohibited. And uh, I don't know how far they really used it for medical reasons, but I've, there are there were claims at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, that they were the users. So I imagine that some people use it also for that. Now, did the act of eating this, the ibex meat, then take on any kind of like symbolic character, symbolic political character, like protest uh, against a regime, or is it just you know general like rural population who just protesting government, no matter who it is? There is also, there was also an element of pure protest. Uh, protest. Uh, when you hunt on ibex with a, a gun, uh, with a machine gun you're not hunting for meat, you're hunting for destruction. Uh, or when you're poisoning, you're hunting to hit uh, the king or the state in what they, in what you think is the most cherished. Uh, so you hunt to get rid of the animals so that you could maintain your um, pastoral rights on the land. Or another thing that was often contested by local population you would rid, get rid of the ibex and the chamois, which is another goat species in the area, to have less conflict for grass between your cows and your sheep and the wild animals. So you would reduce the amount of competition for um, animal husbandry. Exactly. And I was looking at the map behind you then, um, this map of Grand Paradiso, and what you see is how the outline of it goes down in, in, in several places where it looks like it's it's following some valleys, right? Yeah. Um, so those valleys, I assume, are, are those are populated places. So how, how big, and, and they're probably used for farming then, or, or, you know, your cows and your own sheep. How many people are we talking about were in this and then were they displaced and they had to move or was it this only compensation but you could still remain within the park boundaries how'd that function yeah um, so the the indents that you see there's one uh, a particularly big from going from north to south that that is uh, that is valsavarange which is one of the main valleys of the, of the park which as a compromise with the local population its bottom was cut out of the park so that people could keep dogs and do small hunting in the bottom valley. And the park would start at, uh, I think a thousand meters altitude because no, no dogs were allowed in the park. And so this was a way to allow for full use of the bottom of the valley uh, and while ensuring that people could, um, that animal protection could still be enforced above a thousand meters. This was made because Ibex don't go below a thousand meters or, and uh, people use the places above this limit only for um, temporary, um, temporary herding of the animals. So uh, to move them in the sun, to move the 
uh, cows in the house party in the summer and uh, bring them down again, again in the winter. This has been discontinued by now, by now that the whole area is, is park. Uh, and I must admit, I don't know, it's not many people we are talking here. I would say among all villages, 20 to 20,000 probably, not, not many. Nobody was displaced. Uh, there was no uh, political will to do that. Uh, there was also a realization that these landscapes are not only natural, they're also cultural. I think this is a common ish, a common feature of European national parks. It's uh, you never get to the point in which you feel or this pushing people out of the, of the parks in Europe has always been more difficult because they were they were the same constituents as those in the town. There was there was no a racial boundary like Native Americans and white Americans in, in the US. There was no, no racial boundary like uh, indigenous Africans and white uh, settlers in South Africa. So there was a more problematic approach to the idea of pushing people out. So almost everything was possible in the park except hunting above a certain altitude and bringing dogs, which made the husbandry slightly more difficult, but not impossible because wolves didn't exist at the time anymore in, in the area. So there were no predators. So uh, it was not a huge loss for the, for the herders to not be able to bring their own dogs because you could still perform the work. Really interesting to think about how, um, yeah, how it's a multi-species entanglement too then. So it's it's the hunters, but it's their dogs, it's their sheep and their cows. And then also then these ibex and chamois, yeah. um, which are all there. Um, Ellen has a question. Ellen, I'll unmute you there. Thank you. Hi. Um, it's really nice to see you, Vilko. Um, so... I I guess I'm I'm still pondering what you opened the talk with this I, this kind of acknowledgement that conservation history is one of the deepest threads in environmental history, and so I guess I I'm gonna I want you to push you to make a bigger claim is what 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 can we add what what do you want people to read your book for what's What's the, the big reason to keep doing conservation history? Uh, thank you for that question. I, so I started doing environmental history because I think that no history, that all history has to be environmental in a, in a way. And I didn't want to live in a green ghetto. I ended up writing a book, however, on conservation, which is frequently felt at the epitome of all green ghettos for historians. But what I wanted to find out in this book is how much it is, no, it is an environmental history, it is a history of conservation, but it's also social history. It's a history of the people and also of the other species, as, as Dolly just, uh, just mentioned, uh, that lived in this area and had to coexist to perform the, the specific activities. And also how the, the animal species became symbols and means for specific uh, political directions to express the policies 
or to put themselves in certain places in respect in respect to others. So I think that the history of conservation can still serve very good needs uh, in doing this, in understanding how conflict works, especially because modern conservation still is based in a huge way on conflict because there is always a local population. There are always people who use the resources that somebody wants to protect and conserve for some reason. And uh, history can teach us in, in um, some ways how these conflicts can be overcome, can be solved, or can be, or can deflagrate in massacres or sabotage or disasters throughout it. So I don't think that conservation history is really, it's the limitation to, or a, a small corner of a branch of history. I think it can tell us more about how environment and society work together because conservation is one of the efforts of society in approaching in approaching the natural world. And so I feel that, yeah, sorry, I started a sentence, but I don't think that I really have an answer to it now. <laughs> well, I'm curious then about the role of the fascist regime here. So fascism as um, this governmental choice um, that's being made. And, and do you think that the, the downfall of this park. So, I mean, you, you you outlined that for us, that they had a fair number of Ibex, that it had gone up. And then once they centralized control over the park, the number of Ibex go down. They, they aren't able to conserve the thing that it was set up to do. Do you think that really has to do with it being fascist or does it have to do with bad management? And how do we distinguish between those two things. In other words, could you have had exactly the same thing under a different governmental system that also worked to centralize? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yes, you, you could, probably you could. Uh, this obviously, it's a problem with individual, with case studies. Uh, you are, you're drawn by the fact that it happened in a fascist, uh, in a fascist regime. Um, but also there are many examples about centralizations that did not, that did not go wrong. I think that the uh, history of uh, US national parks, centralization did have a rather positive, more, more positive than negative effect on, on preservation in, in boundaries. Um, so, but yes, it's possible that the centralization is only a matter of, um, of bad management and that it did not work out because of the bad management. But the choices and the, um, the choices to uh, give it to a forestry militia, uh, the choice to make it be, and militia, uh, the militia is part of, uh, of an organization called militias, voluntary militias for uh, national security, which was the, um, the official name that the fascist squadres, so the violent squads that had uh, terrorized Northern Italy in the early 1920s had been formalized as part of the state. Uh, so it was not only any group, any organization within the state, it was an intrinsically fascist one because it was born within, within the fascist regime and out of this fascist, fascist policies. Um, the fascists, are a regime that 
wanted to do centralization at all levels. They abolished, they abolished local community uh, self-regulation. Uh, self they made uh, mayors into appointed officials of the state. Uh, they trans they uh, transformed many other organizations from local management into state or centralized centralized management. So there was a trend throughout uh, throughout the, the the history of Italy in the 1920s and 1930s towards everything being decided in in Rome. Uh, so to this extent, the the story. It could happen in another country. Other countries have had uh, similar centralization efforts done by communist regimes, for example. Uh, it went probably as badly as here, but um, there are, I don't know how many examples there are of a park that started and lived under a centralized regime as a autonomous organization inspired by liberal principles for 12 years, showing how it would have, how it could have gone on in the 12 following years, and then changed, and then was then centralized, because in my uh, memory of the history of Soviet conservation, all parks were instituted by the Soviet regime in the first place, and so they were both centralized. Uh, they mismanaged, but we don't have a, we don't have a parallel in the same case study of a different way of management. So I think that's the interesting point of this story of showing how this centralizing had a bad effect on, or the, the bad management had a bad effect on the conservation. Yeah, thinking about the, the relationship then between the, the center and uh, the local, right? So how this national management you try to impose and dictate from the top, how this is going to work, obviously didn't work um, because you lost that kind of local touch, the local people who obviously had been hired, who had been uh, doing their routes, who probably knew the environment a lot better than these guys who were coming in with the forest service, um, who were not, had didn't have that same kind of knowledge. Um, Greg Deller, I'll click for you to unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. So my question is this, um, you know, they're not the only ones doing this at this time. Are, are people in Italy paying attention to what other countries are doing at this time as far as setting aside national parks? And although I was a little confused about this, so maybe you can clarify this too. This is not really set up as a wildlife refuge, right? This is a national park. They're not preserving animals necessarily for hunting at other sites like we, we do here in the US and, and other places. Is that correct? Yes, it was a, it was a national park. It was set up for, to preserve the animals and keep the animals there. There was very little transfer of animals from the national park throughout the 1920s and 30s. They, uh, both the king earlier and the fascist regime afterwards didn't want other places to have the ibex because they felt it would get get away from their achievement. Um, so it was a pure preservation venture, and it was not intended for repopulation in, in other areas, except that much later, um, already during the war, there's a small case in which they allowed a transfer within the borders of Italy, so it was a, a fringe case. Um, uh, the first question, could you repeat the first question? Because I had an answer in mind, but then now I cannot recall it. 
Yeah, so the first question was, um, other countries are doing this. Um, are people in Italy aware of what yeah. other countries are doing? Yeah. Are they intentionally trying to model what other countries are yeah, doing? There is, are uh, there was, uh, yeah, right. There was a lot of debate uh, between 1919 and 1920, or even before 1919, about what was going on in other countries, what could be done in Italy. So a lot of the international debate flew into the setup of the national park. Uh, there was a the title I take from some more or less critical uh, text about the, the park saying, we risk to make this into a monastery for Ibex. So we risk to make this area into a place that in which only Ibex will be able to live and no, 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 nothing else. And we don't want to become like the Swiss National Park, which was a total preservation, a, uh, a park that was trying to keep humans out of the park and so on. We cannot afford this. We need to find a way to do preservation while fostering tourism, while fostering local economy, while keeping people in the mountains and so on. So a lot of debate about the difference between what was called then the American model and the Swiss model went into, uh, into, this, into, into this later on. Uh, around 1933, when the, what I call fascistization, but it also can be centralization occurred, there is much less debate going on. There's much less looking around for examples from, from other countries, which is, however, weird because it's the same years in which uh, a National Park Service was definitely centralized by FDR in the United States. It's uh, uh, it's a few years, I think a few years, no, uh, Canada, uh, Canada was much earlier, but still, there were many international examples of centralization they could have pulled to their benefit, but they didn't. If this tells us something about fascist politics as well and the desire for autarky and not being, uh, not willing to say that they are inspired by somebody else they, and they want to have every idea from their own, could be, I don't, I didn't make the case in, in the book, uh, but it could be that there was a, you could make a, a negative inference from that, that they are not mentioning it because, but there's also the possibility that they were not, just not interested enough in conservation to be really aware of this international debate going on in the 1930s. So a follow-up for that is, you know, if you think about the, American uh, national parks and the way that they're set up, particularly with starting with Yellowstone and this idea that they should be conserved in order for you to use them, right? It's about tourists, really, and, and attracting tourists to go there. So did they put in infrastructures at all for Grand Paradiso, akin to how Yellowstone gets a you know railroad line to go there, for example, to bring tourists. Did they did they do that? Did they make hotels? I mean, or was it that wasn't within their thinking here? They um, the commission managing the um, independent park, so the 1922, 1933 version of it, did a lot of lobbying to get a road built encircling completely the Grand Paradiso Peak, so the main mountain in the park, and allowing to do uh, car tourism around, around it. This was intended as a way, also as a way to give work 
and funding to the local communities as a way to appease them to the existence of the park. Tourism was seen as a way to uh, bring new, a new economy to the area, to make the park into a resource instead of a threat to the local economy. Uh, so yeah, they were supporting the construction of new alpine huts. They were supporting the construction of new, of new roads. Uh, they were usually supportive of uh, some form of tourism. Uh, they were, on the other hand, they were against having camping within the park, which was then um, not, I mean, because of the shape of the park, we, we noticed this big indentation, you could have a park, uh, a camping, almost at the center of the park, as long as you stayed below a thousand meters. And yes, it's, it sounds like a good idea, keep your camping below a thousand meters altitude, <laughs> instead of keep it, putting it too high. So they were limiting, but not, not limiting. And other things they were openly promoting, for example, road building was, a, they were very keen on having more roads going through the park and along the park. For hotels, they uh, did not make direct investments, but they celebrated that uh, between 1920, that in 1922, there were only one place where you could stay. And in 1926, there were already two uh, open. And before it was just a parishioner's house, it's, uh, it's a parish of, uh, of a village. And in 1926, it was two full hotels there. So they were celebrating that there was access to it. I wonder if you could say something about the process of researching the book. I mean, because you you presented us a, a history of uh, conservation, but it's also a history of place. So the question is like, where do you as a historian find that place? Is it, I mean, primarily archive based or did you go to uh, Grand Paradiso, uh, you know, experience the place? And if so, how did that contribute to the, the making of the book? Yeah, thank you. Um, I was, um... I was born 100 kilometers from, from there, fully in the plain. The mountains are just a background to, uh, to my whole life, but they were always there. And uh, so it's sort of the home, one of the home mountains for where I grew up. Uh, secondly, uh, my brother used to be a biologist with the park, which uh, was my access point to the one of the main sources in these books are the archival fund, uh, the archival fund of the 1920s and 1930s, which is bizarrely still not part of the official archive of the park, but is kept in a closet in the, uh, in the second, uh, in the other, in the Aosta offices of the, of the National Park. So uh, yes, I, um, I go there pretty often. I do, uh, pre-COVID, I used to do uh, a tour with my friends every year of some mountains. It frequently was that area. I spent uh, uh, some time at my brother's house doing the archival, so mainly photocopying this thing that I th thought would be interesting from the offices and to bring them, bring them home. So that now they are also now they're also digital somewhere. At least, uh, if anybody wants to check on some source that is in here, I have digital. You, nobody needs to go to the the offices and uh, ask permission. Um, 
yeah that yeah that's 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 mostly it it's uh it's um, it's it's a it's it's the national park for me. It's the national park I, I grew the closest to. So, if an interest drove in conservation in that area, you end up doing doing that. I thought it was the first national park in Italy as well, uh, and I thought it was debatable. It is because there is another national park in uh, central Italy. It's the uh, park of the Abruzzi, which was set up privately a year earlier and became a state park two months later. So there is some conflict between the two parks about which one is the first, if, the, if being a private national park counts or if official signature by the prime minister is more important. But still, for me, that is the national park. I, I couldn't, I mean, uh, I like doing work on places I, I know. I mean, that's a great answer because it shows you how, um, as historians, we ought to have many places we could pick, but there is something personal that's in the choices that we make, the stories that we choose to research. And in this case, you know, having access to a bunch of sources um, that other people don't have is, uh, you know, a blessing, right? And so to use that um, to make this history is really um, a positive thing that can bring those sources to light. Gabriella had a question. Hi, thanks so much for such a fantastic book. I can't, uh, book talk, I can't wait to read it. My question is something I've been struggling with a little bit more recently is this idea of patrimony. And so one of the things I found really fascinating is this will not to relocate people um, because they've been there forever and ever and they feel entitled to things. And so sort of on the food front, you know, and sort of taking it to the hotels of both being um, sort of, uh, you know, taboo things, but also things people think they deserve because they grew up there much like you. So I was wondering if that's sort of a concept or ways you tried to think about the social history. Thanks. Um, so the, the part of, the feeling of the people for the for the land they were they were living on. Um, yes, I think it's it's uh, there was a strong idea that those were their mountains, and also a strong uh, connection to. There was a long debate throughout the early twentieth century in Italy about the abandonment of the mountains. That people would leave the mountains. The mountains would remain without without population, and uh, end up barren and destroyed. So a full realization that the mountain landscape is a human, is a cultural landscape, is a human landscape, is a construct of the humans being there. Obviously, it also gives an idea of what you consider to be barren or what you consider to be wilderness. It's a, uh, there is a, there is a huge, there is a conflict, conflict there. But I think it's, it's true that the, and these people adopted these discourses about abandonment thing, that if the park were going to impose too strict rules on what they could do in their mountains, even if they loved the place and they couldn't think of living anywhere else, the only thing they could do would, would be to leave. So there, is, there was a strong uh, usage of this emotional connection to the land and emotional connection to, to the needs and also a political use of these emotions in fitting it in 
to avoid a discourse that the fascist regime was very keen on. People should stay in the mountains, people should stay, stay on the land. The fascist regime had instituted laws by which you needed a, a sort of um, authorization to move from the land to the city or from the mountains to the city. There was very strict rules on internal movements to keep, so to say, everybody in, the, in their place. Uh, so putting these emotions and the we will need to move away was a very stern rebuttal of what the park was trying to do. Also because what the park was trying to do was felt to be more rigid than what the king used to do, who would go there uh, a month, a year, do a hunt, kill a hundred ibex, uh, provide lots of work and money to the valley because he would stay there and eat there and keep his court in, in the mountain. So while the king was seen as a constant or regular source of income for which you could renounce to the hunts for a while uh, regularly, the state was not because it, it didn't have this paraphernalia of the, of the royal, of royal access. So they had this connection to the landscape, th their mountains. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering about their ibex here and how the ibex works as an iconic species. Um, so does it show up then as as the kind of the symbol of the mountains everywhere? You know, used in I don't know brochures and and you know both then and today is is the ibex the 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 thing that becomes symbolic and then did the locals care about it that way or was it purely this kind of monetary well the king gives us something when he comes to do the ibex or did, did they act did they care about the ibex i guess um the king cared for the ibex the urban uh, elites cared for for the ibex the professor at the university is saying it's the last ibex left we need to preserve them and so on. Uh, the locals in uh, think a way that everybody can uh, relate, especially in times of climate change, say, if everybody else has, has hunted the ibex, why can't we hunt our ibexes? Sort of, so that's paraphrasing what, 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 I, feel, what I get out as a feeling from, from it. Um, the ibex is now the, uh, the symbol, the, the symbol of the park for obvious reasons. Um, Ibex heads were put on the, the markers of the boundary of the park in the 1920s. So it was the symbol of the park already, already then. Uh, but the making it into a symbolic animal, I think is a very, is a product of urban, of the urbanites, which is a, um, a common, a common refrain in conservation history. Conservation is an urban, uh, an urban um, effort. It is an effort to. Uh, I will now express it in the way in which so to save to uh, to save nature from the people who live closer to, closer to closest to nature. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, I mean, that is, that is a perfect phrase for it because that's often, of course, what happens, right? It's these people at a distance who want to save nature from those people who actually experience it. I mean, a very similar case of, um, 
musk oxen that were brought to central Norway. And it's a, a similar kind of thing where people who are far away, they, they want to save it. But the people who actually live in this mountain area are like, no, nah. you know, that's that's not what we want to do um, that are here. And yet, so, so what's interesting with my musk ox case was that the local uh, community, so the closest town, I won't call it a city, it's, it's, a, it's a small town, did adopt the muskox as their shield animal mm-hmm. and everything. So, so has the ibex become that also? So there is some local identity? The ibex are, are on, uh, on shields and coats of arms throughout the Alps everywhere. Usually where they disappeared first, they went on the coat of arms, like Austria, Switzerland, uh, the the Canton Graubin, uh, Canton Grison has has an ibex as its symbol. Um, the region hasn't had ibex since the early nineteenth century, uh, until they were until they were smuggled out of the Grand Paradiso by smuggler paid by Swiss zoos, and then moved into the Swiss National Park. Yeah. yeah. So, so Ellen, Ellen had actually asked about that. So, so these ibex, you know, there was you talked about them being the last. They they were the last ones yeah. that were there. They were the last. Nobody doubted it. Nobody doubted that they were the last um, since eighteen twenty. So, uh, eighteen twenty was when the first official act by the uh, Savoy State, so the Piedmont. Uh, the pre, uh, the early modern state of the area, uh, made a royal edict stating that hunting, hunting, eating, or keeping the hides of ibex was forbidden of, uh, over the whole national territory. Uh, because uh, a research by a um, forestry officer of the area had found out that there were only um, constantly less left, and they wanted to preserve them in some way because they were so symbolic, the symbol of our Alps, the, tip, the historical animal of our of our region. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of this of this discourse, and the this this debate, this discourse about the ibex being the original animal of of the region. Um, was it just became interesting later on because they made a point that the ibex was the most ancient species that it went back to the Pleistocene and it went almost extinct in the in the in the nineteenth century. Uh, that so it was the most ancient species in in the Alps, uh, and then they made a point that um, probably in the area in the same age in which the uh, ibex was there, there were also reindeers. So at, at some point they imported some reindeers from Norway, put them in, uh, put them in, an, encl- in an enclosure, first saying we need to keep them well separated from the park so we will put them 70 kilometers south, but still managed by the park administration. Uh, this didn't go very well because they were first used to pull some uh, sleds, uh, uh, but it did not go very well. And then some escaped. Uh, they were catched again 
road closer to the park where they ended up moving way moving into the park and uh, then probably being poached by somebody i, I don't know of uh, reindeer still surviving but um also because they are no, no not specially mountain species so it's, it's, it's a, it was a weird especially weird decision but what i found uh, interesting is how they made this this connection they had a they made a point about we only want to keep animals that come from this region. So when somebody offered um, another, another species, I can't, uh, can't remember the name in English, but they offered one species and they said, no, because it's a species of the plain and we don't want that kind of animals here. Uh, or they did it, they, it happened with a species of insects, which somebody wanted to move from one part of Piedmont to there, saying that uh, they could not preserve them in the area, but in the park, we could use the park as a symbolic collection of all animal species of the Alps and keep them all there. But the National Park spy then all never responded, even if the people offered, we will do it on our own with our cars, we will just move the insects over. But on the other hand, they said yes but reindeer they must have been living here in the place to see so we can import those so there was a lot of um, freedom on what you could do or not but no there were no doubts about the fact that uh, those were the last items so i wanted to ask just a, a final question and before we have to wrap up uh, about audience so the book of course written in english with an academic press is definitely targeting an academic audience, but there's also the locals that have shown up, you know, in in your presentation here. So have you communicated your research on this topic in any way with the, the local community? Uh, are there things, if so, are there things there that they find particularly interesting, controversial uh, or anything? Um. I've published one, one article presenting the book uh, for the magazine of the National Park. And I've recently been asked to write two chapters for the National Park's book of the book of the century, which will be a coffee table book with photographs and so on. And uh, I promised that I would do it. Essentially, it will be a recap of the two bits that I mentioned today. So how did the park came up? Uh, from uh, pre-fascist era to be a fascist product and uh, how it uh, was fascistized in 1933, what happened under that. So it will be a, um, a recap of what I wrote in the book in Italian for a different audience. So it will, I will have less, less or no footnotes uh, and uh, keep it more narrative. How it will be, uh, the reactions to that, I can I can tell yet, but uh, I think that I might have to talk to somebody, I might have some public events or I might push for some public events going on in 1922, which is the year of the centenary. All right. Well, we're at time, so I just want to say thank you to uh, Wilco Hardenberg for this uh, excellent discussion then of uh, his book, A Monastery for the Ibex, which came out this year with the University of Pittsburgh Press. Uh, and then thank you to everyone else in the audience who came. Thank you. Bye.